right. Can you please rise for the reading of God's word? Scripture lesson today comes from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you this morning on this uh, holiday weekend. Um, assuming many among us are probably traveling this weekend, but it's good to be uh, with, with you all here uh, today. Uh, we are continuing in our sermon series uh, this summer uh, that we have uh, entitled Old Testament Prophet Radio, Listening in Our Times, and taking a look at some of the prophetical works of the Old Testament that might, um, many of which are, might not be that familiar to us. And it, it dawned on me this past week working on this uh, sermon that we never really kind of started this with kind of an introduction to the prophetical works, just kind of a basic general overview of what we should expect and how we should interact with the prophetical works. So I want to, this morning, quickly, I just want to do uh, uh, point out just a couple of things uh, in, in, in lieu of a lack of an introduction thus far. The first thing is that uh, I, I, I would hope that we would resist what I think often is a default impression about the prophets, which is that they are simply psychics or fortune tellers or simply about making predictions about the future. That <laughs> um, that's simply, that's, that, as if that might be an adequate or sufficient description of what the role is about or what it entails. The prophets of the Old Testament are actually preachers. That's, that's really their, their main vocation in the Old Testament. For God's Old Testament people, he had certain people called priests, and these are the ones that handled much, most of the ritual aspects of worship. Uh, that which took place at the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, that which took place later in the temple. But when it came to hearing from God, when it came to hearing sermons, we might say, those came from the prophets. That was their job. And another thing we should keep in mind is that the prophets are not primarily speaking as we hear them today, not telling us about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, it has been, um, I think, probably over the last century, 
or so due to a heightened exploitation and misuse of the prophetical books there's that, it, it, that has led to prophecy expert or experts coming along every couple of decades and telling us because of these events that are happening in the world right now, we can know that Jesus is coming back tomorrow or next year or put a date on it. We should be reminded ourselves of something that we reminded ourselves when we went through the series on Genesis, that a very good hermeneutical principle to keep in mind as we come to the scriptures is remind ourselves that this was certainly God's word, his entire word, is written for us, but it wasn't written directly to us. And that's important when we study the prophets. We must, to understand best, therefore, to understand best how they are written for us, we do well to first consider what it meant for the original audience. And that means we should resist immediately and primarily wondering, despite a lot of teaching and literature out there and voices, <laughs> primarily wondering what a prophetical work says about Jesus' second return, without appreciating first what it meant to the original audience that initially and immediately received these words. And so this morning we come to our, to our next text, this passage from Zephaniah. And we're actually going back a little bit in history from the sermon last week. And we're, we're hearing from this prophet who is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, where the capital of Jerusalem was. And he, like Jeremiah, who we heard from last week, was preaching during the time of King Josiah. He was a prophet during King Josiah's day. And we are told that he is actually, in, in the, if we were to look at the first chapter of this, he was actually a descendant, potentially, possibly, very likely, of another king, King Hezekiah. But he is in, he is a, a, a minor prophet speaking, and this is, he's just a little bit before Jeremiah when he's teaching. But this is where, this is the context, this is the prophet that we are looking at this morning in this passage from the third chapter of Zephaniah. So before we dig into it, will you pray with me one more time that God might honor us with his presence by his spirit and teach us what he might have us to hear. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that you would meet with us however we have found ourselves this morning coming into this place. Whether we come in excited and joyful, rejoicing, or whether we come in not quite as excited as times in the past we might remember. Perhaps we're going through a very difficult time right now, and we're doing everything we can just to put on a game face and even be here this morning. Father, where we find ourselves on the continuum of faith, whether we are far from actually embracing you as our king, as our savior, as our Lord, or whether we come in with hearts full of faith, believing these things however whatever our situation meet with us now may these words be enlivened into our hearts and our lives that we might be changed and that we might know that even though we are interacting with words that were written thousands of years ago we have interacted 
with the eternal living God. That is our prayer this morning. Meet us now. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, one of my favorite memories uh, of when my boys were little, when they were growing up, when they were really little, uh, was, was tucking them in bed at night and singing to them. Um, I, I read to them as well. I didn't get as excited about that. For some reason, it was the singing that I really enjoyed. <laughs> Maybe it's because I knew that was like I was almost done singing. I love singing to my boys. When we first moved to New York City, we moved into a small three-bedroom apartment, and we had just moved from a very large 5,000-square-foot, five-bedroom, three-story house in, a, in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and it was a big adjustment <laughs> on the living space, among other things. And one of the things that we did, I did initially, right off the bat, is we put all three boys into one bedroom, and we had a, a, a set of bunk beds, and I actually propped them up. And so uh, I had them sleeping. I put a mattress right on the floor, propped up the bunk beds. So we had all three boys sleeping on top of each other vertically in their room to kind of conserve space. We had very high ceilings. It worked out very well. And, and when we moved to New York, we moved during, right before Christmas. It was during the Christmas season. And I remember singing at night, and every night, I remember the, when we first, that, the first week and a half we were in New York, every night my boys wanted me to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, every night. I think maybe this is why this might be one of my favorite Christmas carols. Every night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I'd, and I'd finish, and then the boys were like, Dad, sing, sing it again. And I'd sing it again. You know, sing, that, sing one more verse, Daddy, you know. It was a way of quieting them, right? <laughs> Singing was a way for me as a father to quiet my young boys at the end of a day in a new place, in a weird place, in a scary place, <laughs> to quiet their hearts as they would slow down and quiet down and go to sleep. <laughs> of course, I would sing as long as necessary to do that. In this passage before us, we have a picture of a very tender side of our God that we are told also sings over us as his people and quiets us with his love. It's a beautiful, tender picture. But this passage that we are looking at, that we read here today in Zephaniah, comes after two and a half chapters of some of the most dire, difficult imagery <laughs> and warnings of judgment in all the prophets. Which I would make the case actually makes this passage, this image of our God singing over us all the more astonishing and all the more captivating. But in order to appreciate this passage, we do need to take some time just to engage a little bit with the two and a half chapters prior to experience that appreciation. The context of this passage this morning, again, we're looking at the southern kingdom. Zephaniah is preaching, prophesying to the southern kingdom, Judah, who has been warned again and again and again for their waywardness. Other prophets had warned them, you are not faithfully following your covenant God. This is not good. This is not a good situation. And King Josiah, as we said 
moment ago, was the king over Judah during this time. And King Josiah actually was known for being, was renowned for being one who actually led a temporary, a small season of reformation among God's people. His predecessors were the ones that led God's people away from serving and faithfully following Yahweh. But Josiah had a change of heart and actually led some reforms under his reign. In fact, it was during his reign, we're told this in 2 Kings 22 and 23, believe it or not, for years and years, I can't, I'm not exactly sure how many years it had been, there was not even a, a, an access to the very word of God, the Torah. It had gone missing. <laughs> and during King Josiah's reign, it's found in the temple. How it gets misplaced in the temple, I have no idea. Perhaps that says something about how seriously God's people, especially his leaders, were taking what it meant to faithfully follow Yahweh. But nevertheless, during King Josiah's reign, the scroll of the Torah is found. It's brought before him. It's read to him for the very first time. And this beautiful picture, we are told he is literally cut to the heart. And in, a, in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern cultural way of, of expressing humility, he tears his kingly robes. And he gets on his knees and he repents and he cries out to God for mercy. It's a beautiful moment. But unfortunately, God's people had gone astray for far too long at this point. And so by the time Zephaniah shows up on, this, on the scene, referring to many of these passages now being read for the very first time in Judah, speaks a message of very, very bad news. He starts in chapter 1 by speaking of the day of the Lord. And it's not a pretty picture. Here are just a couple of verses from that chapter. This is Yahweh speaking through Zephaniah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked, and I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. It is a complete, is an imagery of a complete undoing of the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, when God made the beasts of the field, when he made the birds of the heaven, when he made the fish of the sea, and when he commissioned humanity to multiply and fill the earth. This is decreation imagery. It's the unmaking of creation. And that dire message continues throughout the book, short book, Zephaniah, up until the passage before us. And it is ominous and unpleasant to read. I mean, the fact, the idea of God's judgment, and specifically the day of the Lord, are parts of the Bible that you and I would just assume not to have to deal with, right? I mean, wouldn't we do better to simply and only talk about God's grace and his blessing us and positive vibes? And after all, this is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is different. No, actually, that would be bad theology. <laughs> That'd be bad theology. 
Yes, it's uncomfortable and it's disconcerting to hear about God's judgment. But at the, at the end of the day, I would make the case, regardless of what the context is, regardless of what the situation is, whether we're talking about our spiritual lives or our personal or professional lives, for that matter, don't we actually, as human beings, as hard as it is, prefer the full, exhaustive, and honest assessment of things over the sugar-coated version? Yes, to hear criticism of ourselves in any way, critique in any kind, it's not easy to take. But when we're able to get past our fears and our insecurities, or at least mentally restrain our insecurities, at least for a moment, don't we prefer an objective point of view and an honest assessment about us and not simply sweet talk and flattery? Think about a professional or a work review or any any kind of strength and, and, and weakness assessment process. The end goal, the end goal is not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but to actually point out areas in our lives, in our efforts, where were, where, where were we to work on them, we would become more effective at whatever we're doing. It would lead to further growth as human beings and not simply for the bottom line of some corporation, but for us personally. The best reviews go that way. <laughs> the best critiques. I mean, if, if you're around someone who only always tells you what you want to hear, who tells you how good you are, how gifted you are, how special you are, wouldn't you at some point just get suspicious? <laughs> The prophets have no desire to simply offer platitudes to God's people. And the consequences, of course, are far greater for God's people than simply not progressing to higher levels of profession, professionalism. So as we look at this, what then was Zephaniah's concern? What was the basis of God's warning here? How specifically, in what ways had the southern kingdom of Judah, where the capital of Jerusalem was, gone so wrong? as image bearers. Chapter 1 recounts a couple of things. First of all, that their worship was an area of se severe critique. Zephaniah says that they had begun to actually mix the worship of pagan gods with the worship of Yahweh. That can't ever be a good thing. <laughs> in addition, they weren't following Yahweh in any, Ze Zephaniah says, in any of his commands. They had completely stopped seeking his will and guidance. Now, of course, that happens when the religious leaders misplace God's word and therefore stop teaching it altogether. But apparently this was still happening after the scrolls had been found. And furthermore, Zephaniah goes on to say, charge them with being violent and fraudulent in their dealings, in their interpersonal relationships. In fact, many had grown extremely wealthy and rich by exploiting the poor through some kind of unjust economic manipulation. And furthermore, we're told that the vast majority of the people of God were simply going about their business as if Yahweh didn't care anymore. He was not really involved. He really wasn't engaged in their daily lives. Or at least he was indifferent to anything his people did. And then the beginning of chapter 3, right before the passage we read, 
Zephaniah kind of summarizes all of this. Here, speaking for Yahweh, woe to her, meaning Jerusalem, who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. In sum, (laughs) these dire warnings that Zephaniah is submitting to the people of Judah were not coming from a God of a people who simply woke up one morning on the wrong side of the bed in heaven. (laughs) These are serious charges. Oppression of the poor, accepting no correct correction, rebellious, defiled. And again, this has been over a period of many, many years where prophets have come and warned, stop, <laughs> again and again and again. And each time the warnings were simply disdainfully shrugged aside. Like I said, the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah are not a pleasant read. <laughs> Wow, thanks, John. This has been fun. Thanks for this. This is great. This is exactly what I was needing to hear this morning to be encouraged. Is there any good news here? (laughs) The surprising thing is, first of all, the beauty and the wonder here is that it's actually God's grace. It's actually out of his grace that is behind these charges and these dire warnings, believe it or not. How is that? Well, anytime we see warnings of judgment here or anywhere in the Bible for that matter, they're intended to be a means of eliciting, uh, eliciting an appropriate response. The prophet Zephaniah here is hoping for, he's praying for a very specific repentant reaction from his proclamation because it's actually possible to avoid what's being warned about. It's not simply a foregone conclusion and an unavoidable fate when the warning is given. It's, it's, it's not too unlike when my boys were little. And I would come home and, you know, we'd give hugs and everything and th- when they used to wait for me at the door when I came home. And after, after we say hi to each other and seen each other all day, and then I would, I would look at them and I'd get this real serious look in my face and i say, Daddy's going to get you. The inappropriate response to that as a little boy is to say, oh, well, I guess I'll just stand here and be gotten by dad. The appropriate response, and thankfully my boys knew the appropriate response, was to run. (laughs) I didn't tell them to run. I said, when I get you, what do they do? They run. It's not too dissimilar when it comes to God's It is not a foregone conclusion when God comes to his people and through his prophet issues these warnings. He is trying to save his people from self-destructive conduct. And there is a response he is trying to elicit. Perhaps we see this no clear, more clearly than in the book of Jonah. And I know Cam is preaching on this in two weeks, and so I'm not going to ruin anything, hopefully, that he's going to be preaching on. But in Jonah four, uh, 3, before 4, you're preaching on 4, correct? In Jonah 3, before the passage that Cam's going to be preaching on, 
If you recall, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He is called to go and proclaim the message 40 days and Nineveh no more. That's a dire warning. (laughs) Is it a foregone conclusion? Apparently not. Because when the king hears that message, he repents. He calls on his people to repent, and God does forgive. He relents of his anger, and he rep- and, and forgives them. The warning was to elicit an appropriate response. But the mercy and grace and love of God is not only seen in the motivation to these warnings. It's also wonderfully seen in the passage before us. And now we're finally here. I'm looking at the clock. I know where we are on the time. This is intentional. We're here now. You see, I believe that there are two things that keep you and I as human beings, at least two things, that keep us from being able to hear and actually listen to critique from others, whether it be human beings or God himself. I think those two things are lack of humility and arrogance on the one hand, But on the other, I think often it's a lack of trust in the character and in the purposes of the one actually doing the critique. Often both of those come into play. Often we're just arrogant and we don't trust the person talking to us. (laughs) But I'm sure you would say the same, but I would never want an exhaustive, honest assessment of me from someone who is out to do me harm, someone who is out to get me. And that often is where difficult words to hear come from. They come from those who intend to hurt us, to shame us, to keep us in our place, to paralyze us emotionally. Growing up all the way through my senior year of high school, whatever the particular season of a team sport was at any given time during the year, I was involved. I was playing. Didn't matter what the sport was. Soccer, baseball, basketball. One exception was football. When I was in junior high, I went to a school that had won numerous state championships in football. If you didn't play football, you were a loser at this high school. When I was in junior high, Right before the season started, there was, a, we knew, there was a kid that transferred into our school, and everybody, he was a renowned athlete in the city. Everybody knew he was going to be starting quarterback, and he was our starting quarterback for the first game until, I, and I honestly can't remember what he did to get in trouble, but he got, he, got, he got kicked out of school. And the coach came to me and asked if, and told me that I was going to be quarterback. Probably the third game that I started as quarterback, I get absolutely blindsided. And I, the, the, the first image in my mind as I, I, I had to have a concussion, although back then it, we didn't think about, we didn't care about those things, so nobody would ever care if I had or hadn't. First thing I remember when I, when I came to and I'm looking around, My head coach is looking the other direction. Two things I remember. Head coach looking the other direction, walking away, and the cheerleaders have all stopped cheering and yelling, and they have their hands over their mouth. I don't know why I noticed the cheerleaders, but that's what I, those are the two things that I remember. 
And eventually an assistant coach came out, and then a couple of my, my buddies helped pick me up, walked me off the field, sat me down on the bench. And I'm sitting there. I'm still trying to, like, come back together. My head coach walks over to me, stands over me, and when I looked up and made eye contact with him, he looked at me and he said, John, no, actually, he said, Stork, you are such a wimp, and walked away. I never played football again after that season. And too often, you and I, when we hear criticism and critique, it comes from that type of a posture, one of shame, one of simple condemnation. But what if, what if we actually were to hear critique coming from someone who actually cared about our full well-being, our full experience of shalom and redemption and restoration, my fully becoming a human being in all its glory, if that was in the mind of the one coming to us. That is someone I could trust with an honest assessment. That is someone that to whom I could pray such an honest and risky prayer like King David once prayed when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a risky prayer. And you don't pray that to a God who you don't first believe ultimately has your good in mind. That's the only way to pray, pray that type of humble prayer. And that's the only way as a follower of Jesus to be convinced of what Zephaniah says about our God in this passage when he says, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. This is how God speaks of his, himself and his relationship with you and with me. He's a mighty one to save, first of all. That's warrior language. He's one that goes out to fearlessly face all of your enemies, all of your fiercest foes both inside and outside of yourself. He fights for you as your protector, as your warrior, but he's also tender. He sings over you. He's excited to be with you. He rejoices over you. The word here for rejoicing is actually a word for a type of celebratory dancing. <laughs> There's no one here sitting here this morning that does not need and does not long for that type of praise and to be celebrated and rejoiced over in that way. But too often, I think we as Christians, if we sit and think about how God must think about us, what his posture towards us 
I think often, in my experience, we are often tempted to think that he simply tolerates us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he forgives my sin. That's what he does. Oh, yeah, yeah, God loves me. Yes. But do you believe that God likes you? <laughs> that God wants to be with you? That God celebrates and rejoices over you. <laughs> that he goes to cocktail parties in the heavenly places and cannot stop talking about you. <laughs> if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, that is the truest thing about you. That is the truest thing about God's posture towards you this morning, is that he looks at you, he sings over you, he rejoices over you. He celebrates that you are part of his family. We live in a world that is filled with junior high football coaches where they come in the shape or form of a boss, any other kind of authority figure, a parent, Previous pastor, <laughs> hopefully not this pastor. That's the posture we're used to. But if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you have a God that sings over you, not simply the way that I sang to my boys, to hope that they would go to sleep. Not one that simply goes on TikTok to try to embarrass their kids by singing in front of them. But more like a lover who sings for their beloved. The one that they love, the one that they cherish. Hear it one last time. The Lord Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that we might more further believe this truth of your ultimate posture towards those who trust in Christ by faith as our Lord, as our Savior. Help us to believe that the one who does bid us to follow him is one that can love us that much, not one that simply tolerates us, not one that simply forgives our sins in some kind of impassionate, objective way, although that is true. But your love for us is far greater and more, even more celebratory than that. Help us to believe that this morning, either for the first time or the thousandth time, I pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.